This program is brought to you by Bobbleway Media, under the oversight of the elders of the Chipman Road Congregation in Lee Summit, Missouri. You're listening to Opening the Scriptures with Don Boyd. Welcome to the program today. This is Don Boyd. I want to welcome you to Opening the Scriptures. You know, we began our study in the first part of Romans 1 last time, gave a little bit of an introduction, and we got through a few verses there in Romans 1. And we saw that Romans 1 could be divided into two sections. And in section 1, Paul showed his qualifications for the writing of the letter. He showed his focus on Christ, the Savior, the Son of God, the seed of David, the resurrected Lord, and the giver of grace. Paul mentioned that he was set for the preaching of the gospel to all nations for the purpose of saving those who would obey. And Paul had a great desire to visit the church there in Rome and to impart spiritual gifts to them and to share their mutual faith. We saw the gospel, God's power to save those that are obedient to the demands of the gospel. Paul now in this second section of Romans chapter 1 goes from the discussion of the power <clears throat> excuse me of the gospel to why mankind so desperately needs the gospel you know God's revelation here <clears throat> we're going to look at verse Romans 1:18 through 20 God's revelation is known to those who do not ignore it I found a little comic one time, and it has a couple of guys, one of them being a scroll writing there, or a scribe writing on a scroll, and he's apparently writing some Bible chapter. And another man is standing there saying, quit worrying about corroborating your sources. It's not as if anyone is going to take this literally. And how true is that of our world today? How many people want to take the word of God literally instead of bringing bringing in their own imaginations and their own opinions and such as that? So anyway, in contrast to the righteous being saved through the obedience to the gospel, in Romans 1.18, and this is where we're going to start in this second section today, God's wrath is set forth for the ungodly. Romans 1.18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. So God's wrath is revealed. It's revealed through his word. It's revealed through his actions that we read about in the Old Testament and some of the things we read about in the New Testament. And this wrath of God is revealed against those who are ungodly today. And it mentions these are ungodly and unrighteous, and it describes them there a little bit. They hold the truth in unrighteousness. The Greek word translated hold there, and this is Thayer's definition of that word. To hold back, detain, to restrain, to hinder. So they hinder the word of God. And God is a God of goodness, but he is also a God of severity. Look in Romans chapter 11, verse 22. Romans chapter 11, verse 22 says, Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in. You notice the word his, there's in italics. Let's leave it out. It was added by the translators. It says, If thou continue in goodness, Otherwise, thou shalt also be cut off. So we find there that God is a severe God toward them that fell. You look at the context, those that fell in the wilderness there, in the wilderness wanderings and such. 
God's severity was toward them because they were disobedient. They refused to enter into the land of Canaan because of their fear and their lack of trust in God. But he also says that we receive God's goodness if we continue in goodness. In other words, he's saying there, if we continue to live righteous lives, we are going to have God's goodness toward us. But if we refuse, that's the last part of the verse. Otherwise, thou shalt also be cut off. And you know, people love to hear about God's love. But they don't want to hear about God's wrath. And God's wrath is unemotional. God does not base his wrath on emotion like we so sometimes. We get angry because of our emotions. God's wrath is not based on emotion. It comes from his just and holy hatred of sin. Let's go to the book of Nehemiah now. Nehemiah 9, 32 to 33. Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 32 to 33. It says, Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the terrible God, who keepeth covenant and mercy, let not all the trouble seem little before thee that hath come upon us, on our kings, on our princes, and on our priests, and on our prophets, and on our fathers, and on all thy people, since the time of the kings of Assyria unto this day. And then he says, Howbeit thou art just in all that is brought upon us, for thou hast done right, but we have done wickedly. Now, what is he talking about there? Of course, Nehemiah, he's the one who went to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem there after the Babylonian or Assyrian captivity there of the northern ten tribes and after the Babylonian captivity of the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And he mentions from the kings of Assyria unto this day. And this is after the 70 years of Babylonian captivity. And now we're looking at around 450 B.C. And Babylonian captivity ended in 536. So we're looking at quite a time here. And he's saying, you know, you think about all that we did, all that our ancestors did were, was wicked. All they did was wicked. And he says, and you were just. You did right. We are the ones who did wickedly. And because God is holy and just, then God must punish and judge sin. In Acts chapter 13, look at verses 6 through 11. This gives us an example of those who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Acts 13, verses 6 through 11. It says, And when they had gone through the isle and to Paphos, they saw a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, and they there being Paul and Barnabas. Verse 7 which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man, who called for Barnabas and Saul. You know, this is after Saul of Tarsus' conversion and before his name was changed there to Paul. And desired to hear, <coughs> excuse me, the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of God? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. 
Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. You see, there are those out there who will hinder us from hearing the word of God. You look at the denominational world. They hinder people from hearing the true word of God. You look at the false religions. They hinder people from learning about and from following the true God. You look at atheism, which is nothing but a religion. It hinders people from learning about the true God. They hold the truth. They hinder the truth. They try to stop the truth. And we see this is just an example of that here in Acts 13. Now we go to verses 19 and 20 there in Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> Excuse me. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. He tells us there that we cannot plead ignorance of God's existence or we cannot plead ignorance of our responsibility to him because of a lack of evidence. The evidence is there. Romans 1, 19 and 20. <clears throat> because that which may be made known of God is manifest in them for God hath showed it unto them. In other words, God made it known. That's what manifest means. God showed it to them, that being us, humankind. Verse 20, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. You see, God made himself known to us, to mankind, in two ways. Through his creation and through his revelation. God's creation gives us ample evidence of his existence. <clears throat> in Psalm 19, verses 1 through 3, Psalm 19, verses 1 through 3. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. You see, we look around us, and we see the creation. God has made himself known through the creation. There are those who want to believe that the universe came all about because of a little bitty blob of hydrogen that exploded called a Big Bang, and all of a sudden we have everything running along perfectly. Well, whenever you set forth a stick of dynamite into something, it always forms things like computers, and it forms automobiles and things such as that. Well, you know that's wrong. Explosions are destructive. They tear things down. So anyway, whenever you look at the creation, you know, you have a computer. We look at it this way. We have a computer. Did you just go dig it up somewhere out in the field or the pasture? No, you know that that computer had to be designed and built by someone. Also, no, a pencil has to be designed and built by someone. So whenever we look at how intricate the universe runs, how intricate our human body runs, God has very clearly shown himself in those designs and in his creation. And there is no excuse not to believe in God. People who don't believe in God are what the psalmist declared in Psalm 14, 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And you know, you look a little further down in <clears throat> Psalm 19, we find the revelation of God. 
there in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So there we have God's revelation to us. And you know, when we look at his creation, we know, unless we just want to be playing the fool, we know there is a creator. And it's up to us to find out what the creator demands of us. Look at Acts 17, verses 24 to 28. Acts chapter 17, verses 24 to 28. Paul is here speaking, and he says, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing that he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed, and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. So there in verse 27, we see that once we see the creation, we know there is a creator, then it's up to us to seek him. We must seek the Lord and see what he wants us to do, and we find that in his word. James W. Boyd wrote this concerning uh, this passage here in Romans chapter 1, and I quote him, Nature declares God is, and the Bible declares who he is, unquote. You see, <clears throat> the Gentiles had more than just nature to declare God because God had communicated his will to those of old time. God communicated his will to Adam, to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, to Isaac, to Job, to Melchizedek, to Nehemiah, and on and on and on we could go. And since the knowledge of God was readily available, the Gentiles, nor do we, have any excuse for our reprobate condition unless we have obeyed the gospel. You see, the Gentiles knew God existed and lived as if he did not. I found a sign one time looking on the internet, and this is what it says. In the beginning, man created God. There's probably no God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. Isn't that the attitude that the vast majority of the world has? Don't worry about God. Live like he doesn't exist, because he may not. There's probably not a God. Well, the Gentiles did not glorify God, and they were not thankful to God. Back to the book of Romans, chapter 1, now verse 21. Romans 1, 21. <clears throat> says, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Well, that verse proves that the Gentiles throughout the world once had God in their knowledge, but now they had advanced to the point where they had eradicated God from their lives. 
Brother B.J. Clark made this comment on this verse, and I quote him. They could not find God for the same reason that a thief cannot find a policeman right after a burglary. They were not looking for him, unquote. That's the problem. People don't want to look for God. They are their own God. And then it mentions their foolish hearts were darkened. Go to Ephesians chapter 4 and look at verses 17 through 19. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. It says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling." have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. That's that foolish heart being darkened. Dave Miller made this comment there in class whenever I was going to Brown Trail, and this is his quote. When we do not recognize God for what he is, we turn into ourselves and come up with idiotic religions. The world is engaged in futile thinking, unquote. In Romans chapter 1 again now, verses 22 and 23, Romans 1, 22 and 23 he says, though they considered themselves to be wise, in reality, they were fools. Romans 1, and 23. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools <clears throat> and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. You know, that is the attitude of atheist, liberal elitist, and some of our brethren. You know, we mentioned earlier Psalm 14, 1, <clears throat> the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. You know, Satan is slick. He pulls the wool over people's eyes and he relates that to religion. In 2 Corinthians, look at chapter 11, verses 13 through 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 through 15. He says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose ends shall be according to their works. How many television evangelists have a great following, and yet what are they? They are those ministers of Satan. Billy Graham, Max Licato, all of these individuals and many, 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 many more we could mention are those ministers of Satan who transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. And God rejects those who do not serve him properly. Back to the book of Romans again, chapter 1, verses 24 through 28 is what we're going to look at. Romans 1, 24 to 28. First of all, looking at verse 24 here, God allows people to freely pursue the lusts of their own hearts. 
Romans 1.24, God doesn't stop us from doing what we choose to do. Again, Romans 1.24. Wherefore, or because that they don't obey God, they've made themselves fools, they changed the glory of God into the, these all these images. Well, all these images today, wealth, prosperity, pride, power, <clears throat> putting animals above humans in value, such things as that. The verse says, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. The Greek word uncleanness, and Thayer gives this definition of that word. In a moral sense, the impurity of lustful, luxurious, profligate living. That's wasteful living. And then he mentions their, to dishonor their bodies between themselves. The word dishonor, again, this is Thayer's definition of the Greek word translated dishonor. Insult, treat with contempt, whether in word deed, or thought. So they're treating their bodies with contempt through their deeds. That, and that's what we're going to see. And God will not stop us from doing sin, nor will he stop us from reaping the consequences of our sin. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Paul wrote, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. You know, right there it tells us the way we live is going to come back to get us. We might say what goes around comes around or something like that. And even though we may repent of sin, we may obey the gospel, there are things that we may do in our lives that there are consequences for. Drinking alcohol, consequences, cirrhosis of the liver, such as that. Now, we can be forgiven of the sin of drinking, but that doesn't mean that the consequences, our physical consequences, are going to go away. The same with smoking, the use of smokeless tobacco, the use of drugs. Whether these things are called legal or not, and I'm talking about things like marijuana and your LSD and things like that. You know, there are things that are not illegal, such as your aspirin and your painkillers, if they are used correctly, and you know, all the other drugs to control your cholesterol, whatever. But there are those illicit drugs like marijuana and LSD and all the things, fentanyl and all the things that people do now. They can be forgiven of those things, of practicing, of using those things, but it's not going to stop the physical consequences. God's wrath is also shown by permitting us to live in the situations we create for ourselves. In Hosea 4.11, Hosea chapter 4, verse 11, it says, Whoredom and wine and new wine take away the heart. What does that mean? Well, whoredom sexual sins. Wine, new wine, alcohol. New wine may be talking about something else, but wine is definitely alcohol. What do they do? They darken the understanding. They deprave the judgment. They pervert the will. And they debase all passions. And that's from Adam Clark's commentary. So God allows us to live in the situations that we bring ourselves into. 
in Acts chapter 13, verse 46. Acts 13, 46. Here's someone else who, God, you're going to live in your situation. It says, Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. Who are the you? Those are the Jews there in Antioch of Pisidia. But then they say, But seeing ye put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. You put yourself in this situation, you're going to live in it. And people change the truth of God into a lie. Go back to Romans chapter 1, look at verse 25. Romans 1, 25. It says, Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Change the truth of God into a lie. You know, I think of abortion on this as just one example. They change the truth of God, like Psalm 139 talks about the infant being formed in the womb of the mother, and God knows all these things. And in the Old Testament, you look, and in the New Testament as well, you see babes in the womb who are called children. You know, John the Baptist, he leaped in the womb while he was still unborn when he heard the voice of Mary and such things as that. And yet, people will go crazy over killing the whales or killing the little minnow or some plant and could care less about the abortion of a living human being. You see, that's changing the truth of God into a lie and worshiping and serving the creature more than the creator. They turn the true worship of the true God into the worship of an idol. Now, we may think of idols as those things made out of wood and stone and gold and silver and things like that, but see, the idols that we have today are different. In, like, the United States, now, there are still those out there who worship these idols, these gold and silver and wood, stone, such things. But we worship other things here in our sophisticated country. We worship ourselves mainly. In Jeremiah ten fourteen, Jeremiah chapter ten verse fourteen, it says, Every man is brutish in his knowledge, every founder, that being those who work in the metals, is confounded by the graven image, for his molten image is falsehood, and there is no breath in them. There's no breath in an idol. In 1 Corinthians 8, 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, As concerning, concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. So, back in Romans chapter 1 again, Verses 26 and 27, God abandoned them to their own lust. Romans 1, 26 and 27. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. Men working with men, or men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. Let's do a few definitions here in these two verses. Vile affections. That word means disgraceful passion. Paul gives an example of what he's talking about. 
And if you have an open mind and read that, you will see that he's talking about homosexual actions or homosexual acts. Homosexuality was rampant in Rome. 14 of the first 15 emperors are reported to have been professed homosexuals. The island of Lesbos and the activity there is where we get the word lesbianism. So Paul is condemning homosexuality, which is by mutual consent. Now, how do we know that? Because it says, in their lust to one another. That's, that is consensual. And God's word calls homosexuality these words, vile affections, in other words, disgraceful passion. Against nature, it is not natural. Unseemly, which means indecency and error, which is one led astray from the right way. That's what God's word has to say about homosexuality. And then it says that they will receive their recompense of reward. The word recompense there, and this is Thayer's definition of the Greek word, a reward given in compensation of their error is meat. And then of the phrase, it is necessary, Thayer says, there is need of, it behooves, it is right and proper. You see, there are dire physical consequences that come from the practice of homosexuality. Nearly a century before the AIDS virus was known, Moses A. Lard wrote this, and I quote, it was a reward received in their persons, most likely a penalty in the form of a disease which they suffered, unquote. And these consequences not only would include physical disease, but also psychological and emotional hauntings of the mind. These are things that come, and that's why God spoke against warned us against homosexuality and other sexual sins because he created the human body and he knows what happens to the human body when it is misused in such ways. And the God of heaven, Romans 1.28, was not the God that they wanted. Romans 28 and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. If people don't want to have God in their knowledge, God won't make them change. Now, he wants people to change. He wants us to teach people. But there are those who will not listen and could care less. So God gives them up to do those things which are not convenient. Because people worship their own passions. And again, you could look whatever their passion is. There may be more than one. Pride, wealth, power, sex, all of these different things. The language of this verse shows their rejection of God was not an unconscious act. It was a deliberate and disdainful action against God. So again, Paul emphasizes that God gave them over to a reprobate mind just to continue in their ungodly actions. And then... <clears throat> In Romans 1, 29 to 31, Paul gives specific rebellious actions of people. This is the list. Romans 1, 29 to 31, and we'll come back and look at what all of these mean after we read the verses. 
being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, <clears throat> despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. Well, first thing he says, they are filled. The word filled there, and I'm gonna be giving you Thayer's definitions for these first few words here. Thayer defines the Greek word that is translated filled as to make full, to fill up, for example, to fill to the full. So they are filled to the full with unrighteousness. Thayer says the Greek word there means this, legal injustice, properly the quality by implication of the act, moral wrongfulness of character, life, or act. So they are filled with wrongfulness, filled with immorality. And then he begins mentioning them specifically. Fornication. There says the Greek word there means adultery, fornication, homosexuality, lesbianism, intercourse with animals, etc. So that also shows that homosexuality is part of fornication. The next word that he mentions is wickedness. Thayer's third definition of that Greek word is evil purposes and desires. Evil purposes and desires. He then mentions covetousness. <clears throat> Thayer says the word translated covetous means a greedy desire to have more. Covetousness, avarice. And avarice means extreme greed for wealth or material gain. We see that a lot in our world around us, do we not? He then says the word maliciousness. And Thayer's definition of the Greek word translated that is malignity, malice, ill will, desire to injure, the desire to injure. And then he says envy. Now this is Strong's definition of the Greek word. Ill will as detraction, that is jealousy and spite. When people are jealous, they're envious of others. Then he says murder. Strong says that Greek word means to slay or murder. Debate is mentioned next. Thayer says that Greek word means contention, strife, wrangling. Someone who's always arguing, having contention or strife with someone else. He then mentions deceit. Strong's definition of that Greek word is a trick or bait that is figuratively wile. You know, we know the wiles of the devil. Well, this is an individual who practices wile or tricking someone, baiting someone. Then we have malignity. Malignity, this is Thayer's definition. Bad character, depravity of heart and life. The next sin mentioned is whisperers. Thayer says that Greek word means a whisperer, a secret slanderer, detractor. See, this is a secret slanderer. Do you know what so-and-so did? 
Do you know this about old so-and-so? Then we have backbiters. Talkative against, and this is their, uh, excuse me, Strong's definition. Talkative against, that is a slanderer. Someone who slanders someone else behind their back. Haters of God. There says the Greek word means hateful to God, exceptionally impious and wicked. They hate God. Let me give you a little example of that. It was actually yesterday. I received a phone call from a young man, and we send out the house-to-house, heart-to-heart to the surrounding community. And when I, he asked me if I was with the group that sent that out, and I said, yes, I am. And then he began to curse and say he wanted, me ta he wanted himself taken off that mailing list. <clears throat> well, I told him that that mailing list goes out to uh, select carrier or mail carrier routes and I couldn't take him off but he could continue to throw it away as he said he was and then he began to curse and to swear and all kinds of things before he hung up on me so he is one who is hater a hater of God the next word mentioned is despiteful their second definition of that word is one who, uplifted with pride, either heaps insulting language upon others or does them some shameful act of wrong. Then it mentions proud. You ever, you know, people say, well, I'm proud of that and I'm proud, proud to be an American, I'm proud of this. Can you find one verse in the Bible that says something good? about pride. The word proud here, this is Thayer's defi uh, second definition of the Greek word, with an overweening, an overweening means an excessive confidence, with an overweening estimate of one's means or merits, despising others or treating them with contempt, haughty. Boasters is the next one mentioned. Thayer says that Greek word means an empty pretender, a boaster. And then we have inventors of evil things. And this is from Barnes' commentary on this, and I quote, This doubtless refers to their seeking to find out new arts or plans to practice evil, new devices to gratify their lusts and passions, new forms of luxury and vice, etc., unquote. And we know what they're talking about there. The next one mentioned is disobedient to parents. There says that Greek word there means impersuadable, adamant, not compliant, disobedient, consummatious. That word means stubbornly or willfully disobedient to authority. Do we not see that a lot in our world? Without understanding, Thayer says that word means unintelligent. Without understanding, stupid. People say, well, I don't like that word. Well, that's the definition of it. Covenant breakers, which means properly not agree that is treacherous to compacts. And that is Stone's definition without natural affection. The definition found there is hard-hearted towards kindred. That would include abortion, euthanization, and such things as that. Implacable. Now, I want to go back to Barnes' definition for this. Quote, those who will not be reconciled where there is a quarrel or who pursue the offender with unyielding revenge. Then unmerciful, without mercy, merciless, Thayer says. And then God's retribution for those who practice or condone these sins is found in Romans one thirty-two. Romans one thirty-two who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, 
but have pleasure in them that do them. In other words, they consent. So you don't have to practice these evil actions to be condemned, just approve of them. And these are all worthy of death, either spiritual or physical. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. They're worthy of spiritual death. Ecclesiastes 7.17, Ecclesiastes 7. 17, be not overmuch wicked, neither be thou foolish. Why shouldest thou die before thy time? That's physical. The literal translation says, do not be very evil, and do not be a fool. Why should you die in your time? In other words, don't be evil. Why should you die early? You know, when we look back at this chapter, this last part of the chapter, we see they know right and wrong. Because God revealed it to us, we know right and wrong because God revealed it to us. Yet most people willingly and rebelliously, rebelliously practice these things, these sins, and rejoice when others do the same thing. How many Christians would never do the things listed here but silently approve of them? So in this part of Romans 1, we saw the cold, hard reality of sin in the world and its consequences. In spite of God's revealing himself to the world, many reject him to indulge in their own lusts. And God gave his son to die for those that reject him. But those we must obey the gospel. Truly the riches of God are above our understanding, as is said there in Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Romans 11, 33, O oh, the depths of the riches and of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. You know, God is willing to save those who practice these evil things if they will just obey him. Well, again, this is Don Boyd. I want to thank you for tuning in to opening the scriptures today in Romans chapter 1. And Lord willing, Romans chapter 2 we will do in our next session. When you're in Moody, Missouri, you're invited to visit the Moody Church of Christ, located on Highway E in Moody, Missouri. The congregation there meets on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. for Bible class, 11 a.m. for worship, and then again at 6 p.m. for Sunday evening worship. They also meet at 6 p.m. on Wednesday night for Bible study. We thank you for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this program. You can find out more about Bible Way Media by visiting our website, BibleWayMedia.org. You can find all of our podcasts on all major podcast platforms. As always, we thank you for listening.